My text this morning is going to be from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church which he founded on his second missionary journey. He started the church with a handful of women and a jailer's family around 52 AD. And he writes this letter to the church some 10 years later from house arrest in Rome. He's being held by the Roman government. And it's considered to be one of the most cordial and friendly and um, personal of Paul's letters. He's very close to the church there. But if you read between the lines, you see that there is division and some animosity in the church. People are bickering. They're disagreeing with one another, and they're being difficult. So Paul writes chapter 2 to instruct them on how they're to get along with each other. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, how many of you read the news? Unfortunately, I retired, so I have tons of time to read the news. It's depressing. There's so much anger that you see in the stories. And sometimes just reading it, I find that I get angry and frustrated as well. Anybody have that experience? Okay. So I'm not always sure how to control my frustrations and anger at the foolishness and injustice that I see in the news and in society in general. The whole world seems to be struggling to get along with each other. So the question is, how does God want us to treat one another? What does Jesus say about this? So a great place to start would be with the golden rule. We're all familiar with that, aren't we? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, and you can flip that up on the screen, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, so in everything, do unto others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus basically says, if you want to fulfill the entire Old Testament, every command that you find, here's what you do. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. He sums up everything in that simple phrase. Like I said, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus actually had quite a bit to say about interpersonal relationships in the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. For instance, he also says, we're supposed to pray for and demonstrate perfect love for one another. And he even says it in this way, we're supposed to love each other and be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. Pretty high standard. He says we're supposed to love even our enemies. I mean, we can all love our family and our friends, right? But how hard is it to love our enemies? That we should turn the other cheek when we're personally affronted. That we should be poor in spirit. We should be humble. We should be meek, we should be merciful, and we should be going even to the distance of being peacemakers, helping others reconcile. Jesus says that to be angry at someone is likened to murder, that we are to immediately reconcile with our brother or adversary, and that we are to give way to any who ask. And then finally, this is, this is a huge one, he says, if we don't forgive others, we should have no expectation that God will forgive us. So these are strong statements regarding God's attitude about how we're supposed to treat the people in our lives. It paints a picture of humility, patience, self-denial, and constant bridge building. So let's look at what Paul has to say to this congregation in Philippi in the first two verses. He says... If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, 
if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He starts off this chapter with four conditional clauses. Conditional clauses are if-then clauses. If you do this, then this will happen. And he's basically saying to them, have you benefited at all from being a Christian? Has knowing God in your life been of any help at all? Has that relationship elevated your outlook for the future? He's basically saying, has being a Christian benefited you in, in, in any way? If so, if this is true, then Paul says to you and to me and to the Philippians, then be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Come together, he says. Get along. Then he tells us what, ha- what he expects the Philippians and us to do. Look at verse 3. I think this could be one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Do what? Do nothing. Does it? Don't do what? <laughs> Anything, right? My verse says, do nothing. Do what? Once more? Okay, good. All right, we're moving forward. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He says, have nothing to do with this. One day, my wife Nancy and I were just down in Mexico recently, and we'd been in Mexico City. We were getting ready to take a bus up to a little colonial town called San Miguel de Allende, where we were going to be taking a Spanish class. And we had a really bad day. We got up that morning. We'd both been sick. We hadn't been sleeping well. Uh, just not doing good. And we packed up our bags. We went downstairs. We checked out of our hotel. We uh, ordered an Uber. The Uber picked us up, took us 30 minutes to the bus terminal we needed to get to. We got there. I had to get in. And this is before the Spanish class, you understand, right? I had to go up and get our uh, tickets on the bus. It was pretty challenging to try and communicate with the, the lady. She spoke no English. I hardly spoke any Spanish. Finally got the tickets, went and found my wife, sat down at the table, We had an hour and a half to wait. Well, after about 30 minutes, we looked at each other and said, this is probably not going to happen. We're way too sick to get on this bus. And when I say sick, you understand what Montezuma's revenge is? That kind of sick, you know, where you don't want to be stuck for four hours somewhere. So we decided to call it off. So then I went back to the ticket counter. Do you know how long it took me to explain that I want to return my tickets I just bought to get different tickets for the next day? Well, you could picture that. Went outside, called and uh, got to a taxi, tried to explain where we were going. I had uh, gone on bookings.com and got a hotel for us. So we went out. I showed him my phone. He said, oh, yeah, I could take you there. I picked a hotel that was two minutes away because I thought, well, we're just going to be back here in the morning. So let's stay close. Well, after 20 minutes in the taxi, I'm wondering, okay, where are we going to end up here? So he finally pulls up to a hotel. I look and I kind of, I'd seen all these pictures of hotels when I was looking for a place. I said, Dad, I think that's it. We hop out, go to reception. She doesn't have our names. I show her my reservation. She goes, uh, wrong hotel. Okay. So we're hot, we're tired. We pack our luggage back outside. Nancy says, let me look at your reservation. Not only had I booked the wrong hotel, I'd booked it for next month, okay? <laughs> so now I'm frustrated. Now I'm angry. Now I'm having a really bad day. So I finally say, 
let's just get a, an Uber, go back to the hotel we were at, and, and stay there, and we'll come back in the morning. So we call them, set it up, we get back. So here's my question. Why was I angry? Why was I frustrated? I'm going to give you two reasons. Vain conceit and selfish ambition. Why do my desires have to be fulfilled? Is that how God created the world so that everything I want can happen the way I want it? My agenda, my schedule, my timing, my inconvenience. You see, the best indicator that you're experiencing either selfish ambition or vain conceit is anger and frustration. Whenever you have those, it's a clue that somehow you're slipping into these habits that Paul warns us against. Why must everything go my way? Why must everything suit my needs and plans? And maybe another word for sin that we can all understand is simply selfishness. Selfishness. So let's define these terms. First of all, vain conceit. Vanity and conceit both imply an excessively favorable opinion of one's own qualities, abilities, and importance. The Greek word that's used here in the text suggests a person who assertively, even arrogantly, claims to have the right opinion. And Paul's point seems to be highlighting the self-absorbed evaluation such a person gives to their own importance and views. It's simply another way of calling it pride. It's pride. And when we delve into pride, we need to be careful. Because in James 4, 6, it says this, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter writes, it says, clothe yourself in humility, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in Matthew 12, Jesus said this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. To embrace vain conceit is to invite confrontation with God himself. It is to stand in opposition to God and to his admonition to maintain an attitude of humility in life. Well, what about selfish ambition? I thought ambition was a good thing, right? We were taught to be ambitious, right? Go to school, get good grades, uh, move up the chain of command, get that promotion, all of these things that are important. Ambition is a good thing in our culture, isn't it? Yeah? Well, let's see what Jesus says. In the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks about ambition where he basically says this. He says, beware of the temptations of the world. Be careful to store up for yourself treasures in heaven, not on earth, and seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness. Jesus reminds us, we cannot serve two masters, for we will either love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. For the true believer, there is a God-centeredness which must color all of our ambition. The key here in Philippians is found in the simple word selfish. Paul warns us against selfish ambition. And so it seems to me that he's saying, if you're going to be ambitious, do it for the greater good and not only for your own personal motives. And so we have selfish ambition and vain conceit. How often are we able to uh, indulge in these according to Paul? Never, right? Never. In my heart of hearts, I kind of wish it said, 
10% of the time you can indulge in this. Because see, that's something I could actually work towards. I could shoot for 10%. I could give 90% to God and keep 10% of the time where I could think about myself and what I want, what my agenda is. But Paul says, have nothing to do with these two things. Human beings at heart are intrinsically selfish. Pride and self-assertion were the original sin. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, God gives Adam and Eve this garden. He says, every tree is for your use. It's for your, I created it for you. It's for your benefit. Every tree in the world is yours, except one. Everyone, except one. Well, you know what happens, right? All the trees in the world except one wasn't enough for humanity, right? Do you know what caused Lucifer to fall, Satan to fall? It was pride, vanity, selfish ambition. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, where it goes into some detail about what happened. And so we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So if intrinsically the human nature has this uh, ability to look out for number one, to always be concerned about ourselves, how in the world are we going to overcome this? How do we do it? Well, Paul goes on to tell us that we can avoid selfish ambition and vain conceit by replacing these habits with better habits, okay? Verse 3, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. We, have, we avoid pride, vanity, and self-conceit through the act of humility when we esteem others better than ourselves. There's two steps here. First is recognition. Just recognize when you're indulging in vain conceit or selfish ambition, usually indicated by anger or frustration. And then secondly, it's just a choice. It's just a choice. I have to choose to put somebody else before myself. I will submit my own will, my own interest, to the interests of others as God asks of me. And then... To finish this up, Paul gives us an example to follow. An example to follow in verse 5, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Paul says we're to imitate the attitude and example of Christ. One day when we were in Mexico City, Nancy and I decided to go on a tour out to these pyramids called Teotihuacan. They're these massive pyramids. They don't even really know who built them. They're over 1,000 years old. And uh, we thought that would be pretty cool. So our driver's driving us out there, and he says, hey, I'm going to be turning you over to a different guide who will walk you through the temple site, and he'll explain all the history and all the information. We said, that's great. And he said, his name's Juanito. Well, if you know Spanish, you know that Juanito is a diminutive. The letters I-T-O means small, right? And so Juanito is little John. I felt like I was in Sherwood Forest, you know. <laughs> little John was going to be our guide. And it was kind of funny because little John was about this big. He was not little at all. But that diminutive was part of his name, little John, right? Well, when we gather in church and we see each other, what do we call ourselves? We call ourselves Christians. Well, Christians is a diminutive as well. The I-A-N at the end of Christian means little. So when you say, I'm a Christian, you're saying, I'm a little Christ. Don't know if you knew that or not. But as a Christian, we are little Christ. We're not the same as Jesus, 
but we're little representations of Jesus. We are living our lives to be like him in word and deed. So let's look at Christ's example in verses 6 through 8, starting in verse 6. Jesus, who being in very nature God. Let's just stop there for a second. Jesus, our theology tells us, was a member of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he existed in eternity past. He will exist forever. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He has all these qualities of deity. He's in heaven with the Father. And then through the incarnation, he comes to earth. But it says he still has in him the essence of divinity. Even though he was born on earth, our theology says that he is fully God, fully man. It's the mystery of the incarnation. And so he has the essence of God in him. He is deity. But now let's look at the next phrase. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. This may be the most important phrase in the entire New Testament. This phrase has books written about it, okay? Jesus was in essence God, but he did not hold fast or grasp the powers or the prerogatives of deity. But the word there is kenosis. It says made himself nothing maybe, but the word there actually means he emptied himself. Okay? What this verse implies is that when Jesus came to earth, he voluntarily gave up the right to the powers and prerogatives of deity. He still was, in essence, God, but he voluntarily laid aside his powers. You might be thinking, well, that doesn't make sense because when Jesus was on earth, he was able to read minds. He he understood the minds of the Pharisees. He read Nathaniel's thoughts when he was under the tree. He was able to raise 